Well, with the uh, advent and rise of Apple TV and Amazon Prime and Netflix, it feels like we don't really um, mark or uh, get information about like the newest blockbuster movies that are coming out. Who heard that over Thanksgiving, a new movie on the life and times of Napoleon was released? Do most of you? Okay, that's pretty good. How many of you studied about Napoleon in school? Our kids, is that something that's still taught today? Cole's a yes, Olivia is a no. Maybe in Alabama they don't teach those things, I don't know. Uh, I'm so sorry. Didn't mean to get off on the wrong foot. At any rate, I have not seen this movie yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. And apparently it's just like this epic biopic on his life and his times and his love um, for his wife and all of the dysfunction therein. But I think it highlights from what I understand the fact that he was a genius. He was certainly a military genius that even military schools to this day still study his tactics and his strategy. And from what I understand in the movie, they highlight an example of his military genius at the Battle of Austerlitz. Austerlitz would be near modern-day Vienna in Austria. And he won an epic battle against Russians and Austrians, and he portrayed weakness in a certain area, lured hundreds of Roman soldiers out on this frozen lake, and then he orders his artillery commanders to fire on the lake, killing the Russian soldiers as the ice broke. It was a masterpiece. He was a Roman, I mean, he was a a French general. I think it was in 1804, 1804, he became emperor of France. And do you know who made him emperor? He made himself emperor of France in 1804. Well, he caused indescribable pain and destruction all across Central Europe. Um, After Waterloo, his final defeat at Waterloo and Waterloo, Belgium, where did Britain put him? Do you remember? from your history, they wanted to put him in a place where he would never bother the world again, in a place so remote he could not influence politics, he certainly couldn't escape and make another mess of things. Do you remember where the British subjected him to exile? It's called St. Helena Island. It is literally in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It is, I think, about 1,800 miles from Brazil, about 1,100 miles um, from another location right in the middle, 1,100 miles off the coast of Africa, 2,000 miles from Brazil, no risk of escape and no influence. He lived there for five and a half years before he died. Why did they put him there? They wanted to exile him. They wanted to humiliate him. They wanted him to feel a sense of isolation, 
alienation, dislocation that he had never experienced before, and they were very successful. The exile worked. Well, that's the theme of our sermon this morning. Return from exile. The name of the sermon is called From Eden to Bethlehem. When you think of the word exile, what words come to your mind? If you think about someone put in exile, what does that mean to you? What are synonyms like isolation, alienation, estrangement? What would be some others? There are so many to choose from. Um, Disconnection, things like that. That's what our passage is going to, I think, bring our attention to through the repetition of one word that's mentioned twice. This morning, our scripture comes from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 17. I think it's the shortest scripture reading in the history of Providence Presbyterian Church. Some of you will be happy to know there's no panel five, that you weren't mistaken when you read the bulletin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 And Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, that's our scripture reading. Those are bookends. 1-1 to 1-17, this genealogy offers bookends that describe the entire Bible through a genealogy. Beloved, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 1-1. And then Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God written for you and written for me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That gives shape and frame to the entire genealogy and explains all that comes afterward. Verse 17, the other bookend, another summary, if you will. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David, King David, to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay, Matthew is our accountant. He's our expert money manager. He was a tax collector. He was a man familiar and committed to detail. And here what he does at the very beginning is he's taking you back to the beginning of all things, do you know in verse one, at the beginning of Matthew's genealogy, how the original reader would know that he's taking you back even farther from Abraham? Is there a word there that might indicate he's connecting you even farther back in the Old Testament? The word that's translated genealogy is actually a Greek word that means Genesis. This is the book of the Genesis, of the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in a sense, it's going all the way back to the beginning, 
with Adam, and then to Abraham, and then to David, and then to Jesus. It's taking us back to the beginning and providing a summary of the whole story of the Bible. The whole overarching story of the Bible contained in this genealogy. And there's an emphasis, a repetition, I'd like for us to explore. Now, in a genealogy that long, you can go lots of different directions with that. You could do a sermon almost on every verse. But today, I want to focus on a refrain that is repeated twice. Verse 17, Matthew 1, verse 17, how Matthew summarizes the genealogy. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to what? This is an interesting way of describing things. And from David to the deportation to Babylon... 14 generations, and so now we're not on a name. We're on like a concept, a historical circumstance. And then from the deportation, there's that word again, to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. I would argue that the whole genealogy, to some degree, is built around the idea of exile of deportation, because I would argue that deportation and exile are one and the same. And the point of the genealogy, the point of the entire Bible, is to explain how Jesus is the beginning of the end of exile. And so what I wanna do this morning, very briefly, is trace the idea of exile all the way from the beginning, all the way to the end, it's not gonna be that long, to help you understand what Matthew's point is, among other things. That's what I want us to do. So where was the original exile? Of course you know this. The original exile goes back to the Garden of Eden. And what was the Garden of Eden like? How was the Garden of Eden described? How was all of creation described after God's creation week? What's the term translated into English? What's the term? Everything was what? Good. Everything was good. That doesn't mean that everything was perfect. That meant that everything was good. Everything was sin-free. Okay, if you had to answer the question over lunch today, how was God's creation good, very good? I guess you could argue based on semantics with me, but it wasn't perfect yet. It wasn't perfect yet in the sense that what was, what, was, what was possible for Adam and Eve? That they could sin. What was possible for Adam and Eve and their, all of their progeny? Sin, death, estrangement from God. Will that be true in the new heavens and the new earth? No. So there were a variety of features about the Garden of Eden that had not reached their fullness by any stretch. But how do you imagine Adam and Eve's relationship with the Lord in the garden? How would you describe it? What do you think of in your mind's eye? Transparency? Would we say intimacy? Um, 
So God knew Adam so well, what did he know that Adam needed in the beginning? He needed someone to complete him. He needed someone to be his help meet, okay? He communicated directly with Adam and Eve. There was no breach, there was no wall, there was intimacy, there was union, there was fellowship in ways that, that, that we long for with the Lord. But when Adam and Eve sinned and when they rebelled, what happened? What are words you might use to their relationship to the Garden of Eden? What happened? They were expelled. They were cast out. They were dislocated. They experienced what? Exile. Exile is when you are removed from your place of habitation and you are sent elsewhere and you experience difficulty and deprivation. Obviously, it was not where Adam and Eve wanted to be because what did the Lord put on the gates of Eden? Who manned the post? An angel of the living God with a flaming sword. They were not allowed back in. I cannot explain to you the magnitude of that exile. I'll give you a teaser. We are still not fully out of that exile. That exile that started in Genesis 3 to a degree still reigns today. But with Christ coming, it was the beginning of the end. And we'll talk about that. So the original exile, the original deportation, if you will, they were deported out of the garden into a fallen and broken and very, very difficult world. Now that extends and continues. So um, last night, I think prior to, uh, or was it, maybe it was Friday night, prior to our Virginia's dance, Virginia cut a rug on Friday night, had a great time at this dance. She said she was going to dance until her feet hurt, okay, and then have a cookie. So that's a perfect evening, okay, so we picked her up, and um, she had been watching Little House on the Prairie that night. That is like one of her favorite go-to shows, okay? The Ingalls family, all of that, Walnut Grove. Trivia question for you people who, who love that book and that series. Where is Walnut Grove? I am so embarrassed to say I didn't know until I was researching a little bit for this sermon. I assumed it was somewhere way out west. Does anybody know? This is going to make me feel better. Dave looks totally confused. That's helpful. Maybe you're not. Maybe, maybe you know. Do you know, Dave? Any, any close? Minnesota. Walnut Grove. Doesn't that, but we love Minnesota, right? That's a great state. But why did they go out there? Why would you go to Minnesota and to the prairie of Minnesota? Why would you go there? It's a wonderful place. But lots of times those pioneers, those settlers, had a very difficult time where they were. They wouldn't have gone out to those more isolated, you know, at the time more desolate areas to risk exposure if their place of origin was wonderful, okay? Does anybody remember the movie Far and Away back when uh, Tom Cruise was a young man back in 1992? 
It's the story about this couple from Ireland, and Ireland had faced major economic hardship from the potato famine. It had just wrought devastation, and so they immigrated to America to find what? The whole idea of boomer, sooner, sooner, all those things. What was the great, they were promised land, that they could have land for free, land that they could own, and because things were so difficult, so horrible in Ireland, thousands of people came over here for the promise of free land. Of course, at the end of the movie, they put their stake down, and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, they get their land in Oklahoma. It was wonderful. Okay, Abraham was the exact opposite story. Abraham embodied the covenant in exile. So when you think of Abraham, where was Abraham when God called him? Do you remember your Bible? In Ur of the Chaldees, okay? We know historically, archaeologically, at that time, Ur was a major Mesopotamian city. He was called to leave his family, his kindred, his community. Um, the Bible indicates that Abraham's family was a family of means, okay? Leave everything you know, everything that's familiar, to be dislocated and go to a land that would be the equivalent of the Wild West, okay? Who was in Canaan when Abraham went? There were other tribal communities, there was warfare that he engaged with. The, the ancestors to the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites, all of those people groups were there. You think they wanted to see Abraham and his retinue come? No. What did Abraham experience there? Famine and difficulty. We don't think of Abraham that way. Abraham embodied exile, alienation dislocation, disorientation, going somewhere, but what? Never possessing. Brilliantly illustrated in the life of Abraham. Did he ever make that his home? Was that his true home in the Bible? No. What do we learn about the land of Canaan from the book of Hebrews? Okay, so when the Israelites finally were led into their land, what do we find out in the book of Hebrews? Oh, they never got rest in that land. That land was never their true home. Remember from a few weeks ago when we talked about Israel and whatnot? So even when the people of God got to the land flowing with milk and honey, it was never, ever, ever intended to give them the rest they so longed for. It didn't even last that long. And then, what deportation is mentioned in Matthew 1, 17? The beat, now, I have, we have talked about this so much, y'all could write a paper, I would hope, on the Babylonian captivity. When in 586 B.C., because of their rebellion and their sin, God raised up the Babylonians to invade Judah, destroy Jerusalem, and take thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Jews, into captivity, into Babylon and Mesopotamia. That's called what? The Babylonian what? Exile. The Babylonian captivity. And for 70 years, they languished in dislocation, isolation, 
difficulty. They had been cut off from their land, from their temple, from their community, from their way of life. It was horrible. Then they come back. Everything had been like grown over. It was difficult. It was terrible. They were opposed. Okay, a little fun fact here. So Chris Coleman gave a fantastic sermon last week, and he talked about the conception of Jesus that Mary was what by the Holy Spirit? What was the term that Chris used, that the text uses? Overshadowed, whoops. That the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Time out. That the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. That language is reminiscent of what in the Old Testament? I think he mentioned it. What did the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, do over the tabernacle and later the permanent temple? What did the Holy Spirit do? It overshadowed the temple. The glory of God and the Holy Spirit filled the temple. When the people of God came back from exile and Ezra and Nehemiah, they get their walls, they get the temple. What does not happen again that happened before? It's easy to overlook. The Holy Spirit of the living God never overshadowed that temple. What does that indicate? Even though they were back in the land, they were not, they had not been restored from exile. Friends, just like Nate said, we have all violated God's law. We are all rebels in our hearts. The, the exile started in the garden and it is not gonna be complete until the new heavens and the new earth. But the beginning of the end is marked by the advent of Jesus Christ. We are restored from exile via his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. That's the point. Exile starts in the garden. It totally ends in the new heavens and the new earth, and it begins with Christmas. That's the beginning of the end of exile, and it's remarkable. Remarkable. I'll end with this. Kind of a humorous, very humorous, and poignant illustration. So in addition to Little House on the Prairie that Virginia loves, we have our stable of Christmas movies we love that I'm sure all of you do as well. Our two favorites up there, top, top 10, Home Alone 1, Home Alone 2. Like that, those are just incredible. And so last night we finished Home Alone 2, which I think if it's possible is better than Home Alone 1. So in the story, Lydia, it's so much better. I'm sorry, it just is. Like you convulse with laughter, like, like um, in Home Alone 2. So, you know, it's the next year. This time, do you remember? I'm trying to keep us awake too. Do you remember where they were going this time? They were taking a family trip to Florida. Okay, this time. And of course, you know, Kevin is singing in this, uh, like a, a music uh, recital or like a music program and his brother bothers him. And then Kevin hits his brother, and it's a disaster for the Christmas pageant. Jill, I hope that didn't happen on Tuesday night at, at Covenant for you guys. They're mad at Kevin. They yell at Kevin. And then Kevin is essentially like, you know, he's almost banished from the family again. He feels isolation. He feels left out. Then they go to the airport. He gets disconnected from the family. They go to Florida. 
he gets on a plane because he follows a guy that looks like his dad, and he goes where? New York. Uh, see the kids? Absolutely. They go to New York. And um, who, do they, who does he run into in New York? The Sticky Bandits. There you go. They were the Wet Bandits, but they changed their name to the Sticky Bandits, right? And so they're there. They find him, and he lures them into a trap, okay, because he's worried they're going to steal money from this wonderful uh, Christmas store for kids, this toy store. And he overhears, like, Marv and Harry saying they're going to steal this, from this Christmas store at night, and all the proceeds were going to a children's hospital. So Kevin says, I'm going to foil this plan, and I'm going to lure them into another trap, which he does. He lures Marv and Harry to this, um, his uncle's house that was under renovation, and it starts at the beginning, and they're on the, they're on the ground, okay, they're on the, the ground floor, and he's up at the very top, okay? This is a great movie, and he has a Polaroid you know, picture of them in the act of stealing from the store, and they say, if you'll just throw down the camera and the Polaroid, we'll go away. This doesn't have to be a problem. He says, of course I will. And he throws down a series of three bricks, okay, that hit Marv right on the forehead. Like, it is the best comedy. Like, and then Marv and Harry go through a series of challenges, many of which should kill them. I think they've done studies. They've done studies on, like, if you get hit by one brick at 100 feet, you're going to die, okay? Marv was hit with three bricks. Harry, okay, Harry's head was set on fire. Then he tried to douse it out in a commode filled with gasoline that explodes. They get hit with this iron mallet. Like, it's incredible. It is like, you can't believe the things they endure, okay? But finally, the family finds out where he is, and they fly to New York City, and his mom is desperate. She's absolutely desperate to find Kevin. So she talks to a policeman on the side of the road, asks for help. He says, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. You know, I'm so sorry. Then he says to her, do you remember the line he says to her, if, if you were him, where would you go? And she thinks about it. She says, I know exactly where he is. Then the scene pans to the great Christmas tree at the Rockefeller Center. And no one's there because it's Christmas Eve and it's in this kind of like cold winter light. There's this grand tree, this little boy sitting there and he's not cocky, he's not confident, he's not laughing, he's so sad. And he expresses truly the feeling of exile, that he's always at variance with his family, that he never fits in, that he's always the object of scorn, that he feels dislocated, not connected, and he offers a very simple prayer to see his family again, and in particular his mother, who he loves. And he prays, if I could only see her for just two minutes, then I would be happy. And then the camera pans to his mother, who knew how much he loved to see Christmas trees. And she wraps him up, and she rescues him, and she restores him to the family, and it's this wonderful scene that really does embody restoration from exile.
That storyline is written so deeply onto all of our hearts. All of us, at one time or another, or even now, feel like we're in exile, like sometimes we don't fit in. We may be at variance with our families or with our siblings or at work or with our children. There are times when we feel like, I just, I just don't feel like I fit in with the group. Well, I can tell you what, with the birth of this child and with his work on our behalf and because of his perfect righteousness and his atoning death, the advent of the Christ marks the beginning of the end. The rescue started there. It will come to its fullness and fruition into the new heavens and the new earth. Now, Dave made a remark before the confession of faith. It's true. Like, we don't want to leave this world. But you know what? Why is that? Because we don't understand how wonderful the next one is. If we could get a peek of what Christ is going to do for us, if we could get an understanding of what the true return from exile is, that the Garden of Eden was never meant to be our future home, that we'll be with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, you, you couldn't get there fast enough. That's what Advent is all about. The beginning of the end of exile. It goes from Eden to Bethlehem to glory. Praise be to God for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for um, this amazing, amazing portion of Scripture. Father, we don't have enough time. A lifetime would not be enough to mine all the riches from this genealogy, from this, um, this genesis, as it were, of the greatest rescue plan ever conceived, culminating in the birth of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection in the day. He is coming to bring us home, to our true home. Father, help us to look at Christmas this year in a new way. Help us to look at Christmas as the end of our exile, the beginning of a whole new creation that we get to enjoy because of the birth of a baby over 2,000 years ago. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.